What's up, everyone? Thank you all for tuning in and downloading the latest episode of Kicking Out at Two this week. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and we are going to be bringing you a bonus edition of Trading Places covering SummerSlam 2004. 15 years ago to the date is when that event took place, and we're going to be covering all the what-if scenarios and the role reversals that is the Trading Places series here on Kicking Out at Two. Once again, thank you all so very much for, uh, for hitting the download button and joining us. Um, I will, before we get into all of that, okay, before we, we, di we discuss SummerSlam 2004 and go back in our Wayback Machine, as they like to say, um, let me remind you all that we're on social media. We're a big part of social media. We want you to be a part of that as well. Facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. Hit that like button if you haven't already. If you have, tell a friend to hit the like button and be a part of all the fun that we're having over there. We got pictures and videos and debates and discussions, links to archive shows, all that and so much more facebook.com forward slash kicking out of two and go hit us up on twitter give us a follow our handles at kicking out two k-i-c-k-n-o-u-t and the number two uh, same kind of fun we're doing on facebook but we're doing it on the on the twitter stratosphere so to speak um and we want you to help build that following because it isn't as strong um that is on facebook so uh we want you to help us out if you got a twitter give us a follow and be a part of the nostalgic pro wrestling fun that we got going over there on twitter um and oh yeah that's right i forgot to mention we're also part of the retromania pro wrestling podcast network if you're looking for links to archive shows you can find all of those shows over there on the retromania pro wrestling podcast network over on podbean you search retromania and you'll find all the shows all the backlog archives of kicking out a two mark out the day's weekend warriors gaijin wrestling radio origins of attitude hulkamania is dead all the great shows that are over there that kobe nida um you know uh he's the, he's the mad scientist of uh retro mania and he's he's keeping it all together over there and he's got some uh he's, he's got some pretty cool interesting bonus content that you guys should go check out um in the coming weeks and we're going to be doing a lot more with bonus content um in the very near future when it comes to the retro mania pro wrestling podcast network so you can find that network over on podbean now if you if you don't listen if you don't listen to your podcast on podbean and you're a google play guy you you can search Retromania on Google Play and you'll find all those shows that I just mentioned. You can do the same thing on Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, the Apple Podcast app. You can find all that over there under the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network banner. So be on the lookout for uh, all the updated shows from the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. And before we talk SummerSlam 2004, why don't we discuss what took place at this past SummerSlam in 2019. Um, before we get to that SummerSlam, uh, let's talk a little bit about NXT TakeOver. Um, NXT TakeOver took place Saturday night, last Saturday, uh, from the uh, the Scotiabank Arena in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And, uh, you know, those TakeOvers, they never disappoint. Um, they're, they're, they're fun shows. Uh, I don't think this was the best one, uh, but uh, I will say that... Um, I enjoyed the Candice LeRae um, Io Shirai match. It was a very good women's match, and I thought that they were given a good amount of time, and they showcased their abilities very well, and I wouldn't mind seeing a rematch between the two of them yet again. Um, the uh, North American triple threat match with Velveteen Dream, Pete Dunne, and Roderick Strong, that was a fun match. Tag team titles with Street Profits and Undisputed Era, that was a great match. Um, Shayna Baszler and Mia Yim, uh, not a bad match. Um, 
But uh, the match that I do want to talk about a little bit in depth here this week is the Johnny Gargano, uh, Adam Cole, two out of three falls match. Um, you know, I was at the last takeover in Bridgeport, Connecticut, takeover 25, and I love the match between Gargano and Cole. I think it was the best one out of the three matches they've had. Um, but this, this might be an unpopular uh, decision here, but, you know, or, or I should say opinion, but the this last match here at TakeOver Toronto was not their best outing, in my opinion. Um, it was a great match, but it wasn't amazing that every, like everyone is claiming it to be. Um, first fall was a straight-up wrestling match, which Gargano lost after he got himself disqualified using a chair. Second fall was um, uh, a, um, a street fight. Adam Cole won that, and then the third and deciding fall took place inside of a steel cage with weapons and barbed wire um, littering the cage, so they used all kinds of weapons between tables, chairs, kendo sticks, sledgehammers, um, bolt cutters, um, ladders, I mean, you know, they, then they had the big spot off the top um, going through the two tables with Adam Cole barely picking up the victory, and I must say that... Um, as fun as that match was, it just, I didn't feel that the rivalry was as personal um, between the two. I didn't think that both um, both guys needed to go to those great lengths. Um, they, 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 I felt like they, they pushed the personal rivalry thing a little too far. Not in terms of content and in terms of, you know, context, I should say. But... Um, they, they tried to make you feel like it was personal. It really wasn't. I mean, these two guys had two great wrestling matches back-to-back -back from TakeOver New York and TakeOver 25. Um, and then heading into this TakeOver, I felt like they really tried to push the personal rivalry thing. I was kind of hoping because it, they had two great wrestling matches, we would have saw some kind of Iron Man match between the two. 30-minute um, Iron Man match or maybe even a 60-minute. Who knows? But I thought the, the, the cage match... It was fun, but, like, it didn't need all that. Those two guys didn't need all that. Um, so it might be the unpopular opinion here, but uh, I will say that, you know, this was a good match. It was close to great, but it wasn't amazing. Like, the entire internet's making it out to be. But overall, takeovers are always fun shows. Crowds are into it. Um, like I said, I got to be at the last takeover in Bridgeport, takeover 25, when Cole won the title. Uh, and that show was just a lot of fun to be a part of. Um, so... Feeling that energy, uh, being in that audience, watching that, and then watching this show, um, I can you know now relate even more to how the crowds feel when they when they go to those takeover events because those those shows they tend to top each other. I will say this show overall didn't top the last one in my opinion, but maybe it's because I'm biased because I was at the last one. But um, overall, it was a good start to the weekend, and then we move on to SummerSlam, and. You know, I think there was some good and there was some bad. I think overall this was a good show, but I think there was some, you know, if I'm going to nitpick, if I'm going to, you know, critique a little bit, um, why don't I, why don't I start things off with, um, why don't I start things off with, with what I didn't like about SummerSlam, okay? Um, and it's not a lot, but what I didn't like about SummerSlam was um, the, the, the Goldberg-Dolph Ziggler thing. Uh, their match um, I mean I knew it was going to be short and I kind of had a feeling that it was going to be a squash and Ziggler made Goldberg look really good because they had to save face for the last time Goldberg was on WWE programming when he had that match with Undertaker in Saudi Arabia and the 
the match went to the went to the toilet because both guys just weren't in the best shape and a lot of that blame gets put on goldberg and so you know the, the company paid goldberg a lot of money to wrestle over there um for that one match so i'm, I'm guessing they were just trying to save face here and make up for it and Ziggler was a guy that could make him look good and he did make Goldberg look good he made Goldberg look like he was Goldberg from 1998 just spearing the shit out of him but I felt like um this has been the same formula of the legends and hall of famers coming back and working with younger guys and just kind of steamrolling over them um I'm not like the. I'm not completely like most wrestling fans on the internet that that think it's a travesty that this happened. But um, I'm just getting tired of that formula. You know, I was kind of hoping that maybe we would see um, like a run-in of some sort. Somebody help Ziggler um, so that it could benefit the, these guys for kind of getting the upper hand on Goldberg here. Um, I'm just tired of seeing that same formula. I, I'm not a, a big believer of like oh. The guy get the guy has a high profile match with a legend, therefore that's that's the way to give him the rub instead of like the victory. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't believe in that 100%. There's certain times when I do when I'll say, oh yeah, you know the the association of being in the ring with them is the rub in itself. But um, in this case, I didn't think that was that was true, and I felt like um, this could have been some kind of a uh, a character rejolt or, or reboot for Ziggler. But for whatever reason, that's, that's, that's not in the cards for him. And um, like I said, as cool as it was to see Goldberg fucking lay waste to Ziggler at times, I was hoping that, like, somebody on Ziggler's behalf would, like, come out and they make a statement and, you know, they attack Goldberg. And maybe this sets up Goldberg coming back, you know, in a few months or at the Royal Rumble or even the next WrestleMania or something. You know what I mean? Like, I was kind of hoping, like, maybe, like, Braun Strowman was going to, you know, come on on behalf of gold or uh, ziggler and attack goldberg and maybe they set that match up and i just wasn't i i i i just felt like it 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 fell flat for me it, it really did um and uh you know hopefully the next time goldberg is brought back um i wouldn't say you know he'll be used better but it just I, I didn't I didn't understand it I, I just I get I mean I all right let me backtrack a little I guess I understand it why they did it but I really wasn't I, I, I just I wanted to see some progression for the guys that are on, on TV currently and what does this do for Goldberg Goldberg leaves Ziggler comes back and you know Ziggler's I, I wouldn't say how is he gonna recover from this but it doesn't make me care about Dolph Ziggler um, that much more. And I love Dolph. I've been a Dolph fan forever. I've been on Dolph's, you know, bandwagon for a long time now. But um, this just didn't do anything for him, in my opinion. Really didn't. So, um, the, uh, the, the another thing I didn't really care for in this show was um, the, uh, the lack of... Um, progression in the uh the, the roman Reigns situation with you know who attacked him and the whole thing with rowan and daniel bryan like i was kind of hoping that there would be a little bit more progression um in that story i mean they had rowan come out and 
attacked Buddy Murphy during the kickoff show against uh, Apollo Crews. Um, Daniel Bryan watched on, but I was kind of disappointed that Bryan and Reigns were not on the SummerSlam show itself. Uh, I thought maybe we would see a little bit more of them um, aside from the video package that they they showed earlier in the evening of you know how this whole attack on Reigns went down. There was no Samoa Joe. There was no Braun Strowman. There was no Rey Mysterio and Andrade. I mean. Um, I love wrestling and I love WWE, but uh, they have too many guys on their roster. They don't know what to do with. Um, the Revival wasn't on this show. Um, so I, I felt like Tal Drew McIntyre wasn't on this show. Bobby Roode wasn't on this show. Um, you know, I, I get it that they wanted to scale down a little bit, but I felt like there were certain guys that I felt needed to be on this show or should have been on this show, and they weren't um, for whatever reason. So that bothered me a little bit. Um, what also bothered me was the, uh, or what I didn't like, I should say, um, not that it was a bad match, but I had no reason to care about it, was Bailey and Ember Moon. Um, you know, they, I guess they were trying to mix it up, put a fresh face in the title picture with Bailey, but I didn't, uh, I didn't have a reason to care about Ember Moon, you know? Um, they had a, they had a, a good wrestling match, and Ember's good in the ring, but there's no reason for me to care about her as a character. And I felt like um, if there was a little more of a story um, heading into this, then maybe I would have cared. I mean, WWE's narrative for this storyline was that Bailey gave Ember Moon a title shot, which can be intriguing and interesting. And I guess you can run off of that a little bit, but I think there needed to be a little bit more. Um, juice to that story uh because the 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 nobody really cared about the match in my opinion um and then even the crowd was booing bailey at the end um but that's toronto for you so and then uh the last thing that i really didn't like about this show was the um the 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 finish to randy orton and kofi kingston um it was a count out finish or they called it a disqualification finish whatever it was um not that I needed to see a decisive winner, and I had a feeling these two were going to go, um, we're going to further this storyline along beyond SummerSlam, but I just thought the randomness of how it ended, like Orton's outside on the floor beating up on Kofi, and he has a stare down with Kofi's kid who's sitting in the front row. All of a sudden, the referee calls for the bell, um, and there was no like attention made to either the referee counting him out or where was the disqualification, because I know on commentary they brought up, like, you know, Kofi and Orton got themselves disqualified. It was just very confusing. Um, I felt like there could have been a, a better way to to get to the the end result that they wanted. Um, and it's unfortunate that you know Kofi, who was red hot earlier this year, won the title. After he won the title, his jets got cooled off, and I wouldn't say nobody cared about him, but um, he, you know he he wasn't hot. People didn't see much of a need to get behind him even as the wwe champion and um you know I'm, I'm the kind of fan that likes to wait things out and see how they play out um so i kind of did that with this title reign for kofi but um i felt like going into this match he needed to have a barn burner of a match with orton and win in order for the people to really get behind him or he needed to have a barn burner of a match with orton and and lose and orton steal the title from him in order for the people to get behind him on the chase to get back that title um and we got neither of that so um hopefully they they they, they rebound from this but it just wasn't what i 
if I'm nitpicky, this, this isn't what I would have done as a fan. But I'm not I'm not that kind of fan. I don't want to be, you know, and I've said this before on this show, I don't want to be, um, you know, Mr. Fantasy Booker and, you know, I would do this better because that's every other fucking wrestling podcast and that's not me. So um, I just felt like if the, the, the ending felt a little flat to me and very confusing. Um, as far as what I liked about SummerSlam, I thought Trish and Lita, or sorry, Trish and Lita, Trish and uh, Charlotte, tore it up um if i'm gonna go with match of the night um that's up there i mean that's that's a contender for sure um thought the way that they handled trisha's send-off was done perfectly and charlotte is the face of the women's division even though she's not carrying either title um she's the face of the women's division and you know the end of the day um someone a name like trish definitely should have been uh the one to uh, really put over charlotte um what else did I like about this show? Uh, Becky Lynch and Natty was a pretty good match, submission match. Um, I liked how the crowd was kind of back and forth on loving and hating Becky. Um, they, they couldn't deny the popularity for her, but at the same time, the home countryman, home country woman, I should say, Natalia, um, she had the crowd behind her as well, and that dynamic was just very interesting as a viewer to watch. Um, I, I dug Shane McMahon and Kevin Owens. I thought that was a fun match. Um, I mean, the Elias thing, it is what it is. I'm not a big Elias guy. Him being the referee, the outside enforcer, didn't really care for it. Um, but, you know, I Kevin Owens, I felt like his character has needed a, a, a fresh coat of paint, so to speak. And it was... I think, you know, this situation against Shane McMahon certainly helped that. Um, like I said, fun match. Uh, the, the, everyone's talking about it. The Fiend, Bray Wyatt, his debut over Finn Balor. Man, couldn't have gone any better. That entrance was so badass. Um, the production quality behind it, his look, um, the, 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 the lantern of um, his head, his, his decapitated head, um, I thought was was sickening but like in a cool way like that was fucking badass like wwe needs to make little lanterns like that or like maybe like keychain lanterns or something um because that was so cool um from what i'm hearing it was inspired by um allison chain's man in the box um and so uh i think it was a, like part of their album cover on that album at the time but um I thought the way it was set up was done perfectly. Um, and hopefully this time around with this new character that they're really, really, really um, going to do big things with Bray Wyatt. Um, I felt like they had plenty of opportunities in this last run with him. And I know some injuries got in the way, um, but there were some opportunities where they could have really pushed the envelope with him um, before. But now, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> yawning here um i think the opportunity is is definitely presenting itself now with this new character and i really hope that they they really you know uh exhaust all avenues creatively when it comes to him on the creepy side because he's it was it was just a, it felt like a star making moment when you were watching it um and uh you know as far as where balor goes i mean um, you know, there's, there's many options and I don't think this hurts Balor whatsoever. If anything, it gets people behind Balor that want to see, um, want to see him, uh, you know, get his heat back and get his revenge back against Bray Wyatt. So that was a lot of fun. And the main event, Seth Rollins and Brock Lesnar. Um, I was surprised it went as long as it did. Um, but Brock has always been the kind of performer that could, that works really well with these smaller athletic types and, 
this match with him and Rollins was their best match to date, in my opinion. Um, they had they've had shorter matches um, for for, for storyline progression, but this match really. Um, we, we, we got the best out of these two, and I was surprised at the finish. I didn't think Rollins was going to win, and I didn't think Rollins was going to win clean like that, and um, it made for um, an exciting match. I mean, you know, I, I, I figured, damn, it's Brock Lesnar. He's in for another title run, um, you know, a long one, going into the, the move to Fox. Maybe he's the one that dethrones Kofi. Uh, uh, you know uh, coming up who knows maybe he gets involved in the wwe title picture um i really don't know i think it's very possible um as they head into fox um i've heard fox wants brock on the smackdown show so there's a chance we might see some reshuffling of the deck wouldn't surprise me if we get a draft coming up um heading into the the debut in october but um overall i thought this was a, a, a good show um a couple of things I didn't care for, but for the most part, the, the, the storyline progression, the in-ring action um, was good to, to almost great. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say this is one of the best Summer Slams, but it's certainly not the worst. But, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd give this an 8. I'd give this a solid 8. Um, and if and it, and it wasn't a fucking marathon either. The main card started at 7 o'clock and the show ended at 10.30. I was like, three and a half hours. I was like, you know what? That's a solid amount of time. That's just enough for me, you know? Um, I didn't really watch any of the pre-show. I was busy doing stuff before I got, you know, got myself together to, to watch this event. But, um, you know, th th that's a solid amount of time, three and a half hours. Like, that's what I think they should strive to. Um, and I guess maybe it's a blessing in disguise that all the other names I mentioned before, like Joe, Braun, Ray, Andrade, Revival, Bobby Roode, all those guys weren't on the card because it just was too many spots. Um, and it would take up too much time. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, and I guess it's a good thing because, like I said, this three and a half hour show um, ended well and you didn't feel like you were, you know, trudging through it like you normally do, especially with these fucking marathon WrestleManias that they have. Oh, my God, it's fucking brutal. But um, anyhow, that's where I stand when it comes to SummerSlam 2019. Let's get into it this week. A bonus trading places edition of kicking out at two is we're going to cover SummerSlam 2004 from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, August the 15th, 2004. SummerSlam was just recently in Toronto at that very same arena um, just this past week, and uh, it was uh, it, it was quite the show. Whether it was good or whether it was bad, it was quite the show. But um, nonetheless, um, I thought considering it's the 15-year anniversary of that event, and that was a very strange SummerSlam to say the least, I thought it would be fitting to kind of play a little role reversal. I try to do trading places like once a month or once every other month um, here on Kicking Out at Two, and I thought this show definitely embodies what uh, our role reversal concept really is here. So, um, yeah, let, 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 let's go down the line with the card. I mean, um, this event held in Toronto August 15th, 2004, 15 years ago this week, and um, the, the, the crowd in Toronto definitely set the tone for what was to come in that show um and it built and built and built until you know it finally exploded at the end but um the audience is really a, a big factor into this and in, even into some of these scenarios here but people 
you know want to talk about wrestling audiences and their impact on the product and the presentation from time to time and how you really can't please wrestling fans and that's probably been you know a, a case forever and a day ago for as long as i can remember in wrestling but um in the last several years wrestling audiences have been very vocal and i think this was the early part of it i think this was the start of it with this crowd uh, you know on the broadcast jerry lawler and jim ross um claimed that you know this was bizarro world um and that the audience was um was voicing their opinions about certain wrestlers and certain aspects of the show that they didn't really expect. So um, that's one of the reasons why this makes this show weird. And another reason why this, to me, this was a weird SummerSlam was because of um, some of the finishes and some of the matchups. Um, this wasn't my, my, my most favorite SummerSlam, I will say, but um, this SummerSlam here and what took place from this SummerSlam in real time in 2004 really set the tone for what was to come going into 2005 towards the end of 2004 and into 2005 in a very similar fashion that SummerSlam 91 did going into the end of that year and into 1992 as I mentioned on our trading places SummerSlam 91 just from just a few weeks ago so um this is going to be a fun one and uh let's let's get into it um the, the first match on the card saw the Dudley Boys in a six-man tag team match face off against Rey Mysterio, Billy Kidman, and Paul London. Now, the Dudley Boys at the time, Bubba and Devon, were a, um, a top-heel tag team, and they were part of SmackDown. Um, they had a run with the belts for a little while, and they were... Um, I wouldn't say they were floundering, but they were just kind of, you know, stuck in that Dudley Boy rut. They were just kind of... They were there. They were a reliable team. They were a big-name tag team on SmackDown, but um, the tag team division on both brands was pretty weak, just like it is currently now. Um, actually, I shouldn't say it's weak, but it, it, it it's all over the place, just like everything else about WWE currently is all over the place. But um, in this case, the Dudley boys were really like the only – like top legitimate tag team and they were just starting to build Kidman in London into something serious which I was kind of enjoying um because both guys are talented guys in ring and their styles meshed well together so I was really enjoying the the, the combination of them as a team uh, working against a team like the Dudleys the Dudleys work very well with teams that are smaller than them um guys that move around quicker the styles mesh really well studleys with that smash mouth brawling style and then you have kidman and london that were you know high flyers it worked well together they, they made magic with the hardys and edge and christian and i think they could have done some really good stuff with kidman and london um so anyhow the dudleys like i said they were in that dudley boy rut in my opinion where they were just there they had a name they were a part of the show, but they were they needed to do something to reinvent themselves because I felt like the this was this was two years, almost two years after they had reunited after the original brand split. When they split the two of them up, they moved Devon to SmackDown. They kept Bubba on Raw. They gave Devon the Reverend gimmick, and Bubba was still a Dudley boy. Um, and then that didn't work, and they brought them back together. And as a team, when they brought them back together, it was cool to see, but. There wasn't anything new about it. There wasn't anything fresh about it. The initial, the initial uh, reuniting at Survivor Series 2002 was pretty cool, but it was back to business after that, at least for me as a fan. So I was looking for something different, fresh from them, and we got that in the form of Spike Dudley turning heel. 
Spike Dudley was the cruiserweight champion at the time. He had defeated Rey Mysterio with help from the Dudleys. And we saw a different side of Spike because for the longest time, Spike was always an adversary um, to the Dudley boys in the original ECW and at times in the WWE. So, and Spike was always the lovable, you know, um, underdog, small, you know, small guy, baby face. And the Dudleys were the big bad bullies that would bully their little half brother, um, the runt of the Dudley litter. And so, um, this was a, this was a, a, a fresh coat of paint, so to speak, uh, with, um, you know, Bubba and, um, and, uh, and Devon along with, um, Spike Dudley. And you really got to see the early stages of, the the boss character that Spike Dudley was playing, he was like the little Napoleon, like he was the he he was the shot caller of the Dudley trio, and um, it, you know roles were, were kind of reversed in this instance because the Dudley boys were always the aggressors towards Spike, and now Spike, who you know kind of turned over a new leaf, enlisted in his brothers Bubba and Devon to do all his dirty work. So this was a different version of the Dudleys that I felt like. Um, wasn't exploited enough. So we saw the early stages of this at SummerSlam um, with their match against Kidman, London, and Rey Mysterio. And so history showed us um, with, when it came to this match that the Dudley boys would come out the victor. Um, it was clear the reason why the Dudleys were the victors was because they were trying to establish this new trio. Spike had just turned, won the Cruiserweight title, and like you know the old formula the money in the chase so mysterio chasing after spike dudley in the cruiserweight title was uh, a story that that looked like they were heading down um kidman in london at the time i believe were the tag team champions so the dudleys had their sights set on their championships um i will say um you know the 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 prospects of um, the classics that I was hoping to see from these two tag teams um, didn't really come to be. Um, I, I expected big things from the Dudleys and London and Kendrick um, from a match quality standpoint. And they didn't really exploit that enough. They kind of really pushed the, the, the Spike Dudley issue in this match. Um, so and then the, the, the build up before this as well as following this. So, um, you know, the. History showed us it was a good match, great way to open up that SummerSlam, and it was a different, you know, take on the Dudley boys with Spike as, like, the boss, as, like, the leader, while Bubba and Devon just kind of, you know, did his bidding. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was pretty cool, and it had a serious touch to it, but also a comedic flair to it as well um, that I thought was uh, definitely um, uh, different for them at that time. Uh, Mysterio, Kidman, and London, they weren't going to be a trio for very much longer. They just had a common enemy in the Dudleys, so um, I could see why the Dudley boys picked up the victory. But what if we trade places? And what if Rey Mysterio, Billy Kidman, and Paul London were to have picked up the victory over the Dudley boys in this tag team match? Um, what does it do for the Dudleys? Well, they were a newly established trio with Spike at the at, at, at the helm as the leader. And I feel like a loss for the Dudley boys, it wouldn't do anything to them and their credibility as characters by any stretch of the imagination because they were over and they were staying over and that wasn't going to change. Um, if anything, 
I think the loss would have helped the dynamic of the relationship that they had with Spike. Because, like I said, we saw the early stages of this little Napoleon complex that Spike Dudley was 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 exploiting. And I could picture the Dudleys losing and Spike blaming Bubba or Devon or both and really ripping into them. And we see, you know, the, the, the path of, you know, Spike being the, the aggressor out of the two. Um, like we kind of saw following this when they won. So... It doesn't do anything for the Dudleys in a bad way. If anything, it helps further along the story with Spike and their dynamic as a family unit trio. Um, What's it do for Kidman in London? I think it adds some credibility to them as a tag team, especially as the champions. I really do believe that. Um, at a time when SmackDown and even Raw, their tag team divisions were pretty weak. Uh Kidman in London getting a victory over the Dudley boys and and as tag team champions in this non-title six-man tag match definitely helps them uh, I will say I was not a fan of the two of them splitting up down the line I really wasn't I didn't like it at all um, even though they kind of tried to mix the cruiserweight division into it and I get maybe the reason why they split them up so they could be singles wrestlers in the cruiserweight division but they didn't put enough emphasis on the cruiserweight division at that time in 2004 so they took away a good tag team and I think the tag teams were lacking more so than the cruiserweights because there was a there was a fair amount of guys in that cruiserweight division that they could have held their own within division um, but yeah, the tag team division was lacking, and I felt Kidman and London could have been a really strong babyface tag team that they, um, you know, could have. I, 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 when I pictured them, I pictured these two high-flying, young, good-looking guys, similar to like the Fantastics, like uh, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers, or even the Rock and Roll Express, and uh, you know the the matches they could have with the Dudleys. That's what I envisioned when it came to them as a team. So when they split them up, I was very disappointed. Um, even though the circumstances regarding the split was an intriguing storyline, when Kidman um, dumped London because of the whole accidental shooting star press when Kidman's knee nailed Chavo in the face and they turned that into a storyline that was intriguing but the split I just I, I I enjoyed them as a team personally so um, what it does what a win in this situation does for them is just adds credibility to them as a team uh, moving forward I more than likely would probably see them going after the Dudleys some more um, and being a uh, a staple within the SmackDown tag team division, even though SmackDown's tag team division really only consisted of like two, three teams at best. And um, as far as Rey Mysterio goes, well, this just gives him another opportunity to get after Spike and that Cruiserweight Championship. So, um, yeah, I don't really see major things coming out of this situation in this scenario. But if there's one thing that if there's one, if if whoever benefits from this is more than likely the Dudleys because of the, the 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 emphasis that's put on their 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 path with spike as the leader and this napoleon complex he has and how he bosses the two of them around that's the more intriguing because that was where the emphasis was put following this they didn't put a whole lot of emphasis on kidman in london until they absolutely had to and they i think they did it in the wrong manner but nonetheless that's where i stand when it comes to this match here uh the second match on this card you had kane and matt hardy in a till death do us part match now um this situation stemmed from um kane having an obsession with lita and 
wanting to hurt her boyfriend, Matt Hardy, and beating him up. And um, it would be revealed later on that, you know, Lita um, slept with Kane to avoid Matt Hardy further taking beatings from Kane. Um, and then it was revealed that, you know, Kane had impregnated Lita. So, um, to me, that's called rape. <laughs> uh, you know, we, Dennis and I talked about it on our Vengeance 2004 watch party, which you can find in the archives over at the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network over at Podbean or SoundCloud.com, or you can find the link on our social media pages, Facebook and Twitter. Um, yeah, I mean, that's to me, that's borderline rape. I mean, he forces a woman to have sex with him so that, you know, her, her boyfriend, um, you know, would be safe. I mean, come on, that's, you know, that's blackmail right there. But, um, you know, this is wrestling after all. It's, you know, it's make-believe. So, I mean, we kind of have to, you know, um, you know, uh, forget about some of that realism and uh, and, and, and and just kind of go with the story. So, um, this was the Till Death Do Us Part match, which it wasn't anything special about. It was just a tagline for a match. But uh, whoever won got to marry Lita. Um which I never really got behind a stipulation like that. That was where like my bullshit alarm went off and I was like, come on, man, really? Like you're going to put a marriage on the line, like, uh, like up for grabs, like, come on, that's stupid. Like, you know, like just like when the, the following year they did Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero and they had the, the, the custody of Dominic hanging in a briefcase in a ladder match. Like, come on, that's fucking stupid. Like I, I just didn't buy into that stuff. Um, but this match here, um, it, it wasn't anything special other than, uh, you know, Kane getting the victory um, decisively over Matt Hardy. And we would see Kane um, get the opportunity to marry Lita and um, consummate that marriage with, you know, her giving birth to their, their unborn child. Um, but what if, what if Matt Hardy picked up the victory over Kane? You know, for months, Matt Hardy's character was fighting an uphill battle with Kane. Um, he got one victory over him at Vengeance in that no disqualification match. Um, but he uh, he was really the one that was taking the beatings from Kane week after week and, and dealing with the issues that he was dealing with, um, knowing that his, his girlfriend um, had a, a, a sexual affair um, unwillingly with this monster of a human being, Kane. But what if Matt Hardy got his revenge and he finally picked up the victory over Kane? Well, what does this do for Matt Hardy? Well, this is 2004, and Matt Hardy was kind of in a weird spot in 2004 um, in a singles role. His brother Jeff was no longer in the company. Jeff, I believe, was on his way to TNA at the time, or he was already in TNA. And... Um, you know, he stopped doing the Matt Hardy version one character. He was just, you know, Hardy boy, Matt Hardy and uh, carving his own path. And he was doing OK, but he was he, I mean, he wasn't the same Matt Hardy that everyone knew and loved. But, you know, he still had a following. He still had a fan base. Um, people still cared about him. So um, he was almost like in like a rut in like a, 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 a holding pattern of sorts when it came to his character and i feel like a victory over kane would really 
helped get him to the next level as a singles competitor, um, maybe as, you know, in the Intercontinental Championship division or, um, you know, for the United States. I believe the Intercontinental, yeah, because he was on Raw, so it was an Intercont- Intercontinental title was on Raw at the time. So, yeah, Matt Hardy, a win over Kane, like, it, it would have been cool to see him a part of the Intercontinental Championship picture, maybe move him out of this silliness with Kane because I was just kind of over it at that point. Um, it would have done some. It would have done some pretty good things for him. Um, would he have been the world champion? Not at that moment, but I mean, I think Matt Hardy would have um, would have excelled in a singles role with a big victory over an imposing figure like Kane. You got to remember, a year prior, Kane took the mask off and kind of reinvented himself, and really was on a path of destruction for you know the better part of a year until he met his match with Undertaker at WrestleMania, and that was the end of it. But Kane, you know, as over as he was, he was still an intimidating figure and an intimidating force and a, a strong character on the show that he was still you know seen as a credible um, opponent in the landscape of Monday Night Raw and WWE at the time. So a victory for Matt Hardy over him would have done some pretty good things for Matt Hardy. Um, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have hurt Kane, but it would have been like the ultimate like fuck you to Kane. Like, all right, you got my girlfriend you impregnated. Um, you know, but you know, I'm gonna marry her now and we're gonna raise this child and you know, you're not gonna have anything to do with it, you know? We're gonna we're gonna save this baby from the hell that it's going to endure if you were the if you were actually a part of this kid's life. Like as silly as that sounds, that that I can see happening and being realistic. I can see, you know, Hell, I could see a custody of a child, you know, up up for grabs, you know, with the two of them before the Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio bullshit from a year prior. Um, Matt winning, they get married. Kane tries to interrupt and ruin that wedding. Lita, maybe maybe during that point in time, that's when Lita, you know, the, uh, some physicality takes place during the wedding. Lita falls, hurts herself, loses the baby. We get one big final blow off between Matt Hardy and Kane, and then they go their separate ways. Maybe. Uh, maybe we we never see Snitsky, um, and it, we we don't truly know if it was Snitsky's fault or not. <laughs> um, for those of you that get the reference, but um, yeah, for 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 Matt Hardy, it I think it would be a nice little you know, a victory. Him gets him over the hump a little bit, and kind of you know he can move past some of this stuff. Or at least try to move past some of this stuff. Have a have a nice win under his belt because as a singles competitor, um, I think he was. I think his reputation amongst fans was that he was a tag team guy. He was living off being a tag team guy, and he had some credibility. But to really make a name for himself in a singles role on Monday Night Raw without the V1 character was another test for him. So um, as far as Kane goes, losing this, he doesn't lose. You know, he doesn't really um, nothing really harmful happens to his character um, because he can get his heat right back. You know, like I said, if he were to lose this match and Matt Hardy goes to marry Lita, whether it's a week or two after on Raw, Kane can easily interrupt that wedding, destroy Matt. Um, and, you know, we're kind of back on, you know, we're, we're, the the tit for tat between the two is, is, is continuing. But um, nothing earth shattering coming out of this uh, scenario here between the two guys. But, um, other than maybe, maybe we get a custody battle over a child if the child isn't, um, you know, unfortunately miscarried uh, by Lita. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Let's move on here. 
we have the United States Championship best of five series. The first match of this series uh, took place at this SummerSlam 15 years ago. It was John Cena and Booker T. Um, for the United States Championship. And if I recall, um, Cena and Booker, um, you know, this was kind of a play off of the Booker T. Chris Benoit uh, best of seven series for the television title in WCW. They wanted to try and recreate that magic a little bit. And I think it kind of fell short. But, I mean, there were still some good matches. And I think for Cena, as he was starting his ascension to the top, um, Going over a guy like Booker T was really um, helpful to his trajectory, um, adding that name to the list because Booker T was recognized as the five-time WCW champion and this decorated tag team wrestler from his days in WCW with Stevie Ray as the Harlem Heat and even some of his early WWE stuff. Um, he was seen with some credibility. So Cena beating him at that time in 2004 um, was a nice way to kick things off. Um, if I remember correctly, I believe the path was Cena got two straight victories over Booker. Booker then picked up two victories after that, and then the fifth and final match took place between Cena and Booker, and Booker got the or, uh, Cena got the victory and kept his United States Championship. Um, yeah, uh, before we get to that, let's let, let let's let's. Let's trade places here. Let's just say Booker T gets the upper hand and Booker T gets the victory. Um, we're still in that model of the babyface chasing the heel. So if Booker T picks up the victory in this best of five series and match number one at this SummerSlam, um, it's just another reason to get people behind Cena more. Cena was red hot at that time. He was on fire, man. Um, 2004 was a very good year for him and that was the year i think when people started to really see he was going to be a big part of the future if not the face of the company um with the stuff he was doing with his stuff with kurt angle and big show and um how he was really holding it down on smackdown um you know against like renee dupree and then eventually this stuff with booker t um so a booker t victory in this first match um I believe it, it, it kind of adds a notch on Booker T's belt and kind of gives him the advantage as they go on to this best of five series. Excuse me. And it gets the people behind Cena more. It doesn't do anything to hurt either guy. Um, now, does it mean that Booker T would come out the victor in this U.S. championship uh, best of five series? No, I don't think so. I just think it may give Booker like a, a, a good advantage. Uh, let's say the roles were reversed. Booker wins the first match. Booker wins the second match. And Cena's got to climb back and win three in a row to keep the championship. That, to me, I think is a little more intriguing than what they originally went with, with Cena taking the first two victories, Booker coming back as the heel taking the next two, and then the rubber match is the fifth and final match where Cena wins it. To me, the formula of the babyface chasing the heel always works. It's, it's a formula that's not only just used in wrestling, but it's used in all facets and forms of entertainment with television and movies. You have, there's these elements of good versus evil no matter where you are. It's even in, in pop culture and in life today. You know what I mean? Um, you know, the, the people want to see the good guy chase the bad guy and get a hand, get a hold of the bad guy and get, you know, and, and, and get their victory and the bad guy gets their comeuppance. That's just, that, that's just a formula that has worked and will always work till the end of time.
I truly believe that. And I think that formula probably would have been the better of the, um, the, the, the trading places scenarios here with, um, with John Cena and Booker T. John Cena, in my opinion, if he were to lose the first two um, and then win the next three, that that seems very realistic it adds a little bit more sympathy to john cena's character because if i remember correctly when cena won this match at SummerSlam and then he won the next one it didn't really to me i remember thinking like are they squashing booker t are they they're really pushing cena hard and that was you know the the that was the path I expected, but I didn't expect him to go 2-0, and especially when it comes to like these two out of three or best of five kind of series. Usually the heel kind of dictates the pace of the matches, and the babyface came out strong in the first two, you know, in, in terms of John Cena here in 2004. So um, I thought that was an, uh, an interesting take, but it wasn't as entertaining and compelling as a heel taking the first two and then Cena having to, you know, the heel Booker T taking the first two, Cena taking the next three. Um, it doesn't, like I said, doesn't do anything to hurt either guy, and it just helps um, add a little more intrigue and a little more emotional investment into the story. So, uh, yeah, that's 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 also where I stand when it comes to this match. Here's an interesting match here. Triple threat for the Intercontinental Championship. We saw Edge defend the Intercontinental Championship against both Batista and Chris Jericho. Um in his hometown of Toronto. History showed us that Edge um, was the victor in this match, defeating Batista and Chris Jericho. Both Batista and Jericho had issues with each other. Um, they had a match at the um, the Vengeance pay-per-view a month prior when Batista came out the victor. Um, there were some issues between both guys with Edge, and Edge's newly won Intercontinental Championship. Uh, I believe uh, one, if not both of them, had gotten singles victories over Edge or pinfall victories over him in different variations of matches, and they both earned an opportunity at the Intercontinental Championship. Um, Edge newly, you know, won that newly uh, – title over randy orton at the vengeance 2004 pay-per-view uh like i said we did the watch party of that that's a great match i was at that show fantastic match i was kind of hoping we'd see a rematch between edge and randy orton at that at this summer slam i'll be perfectly honest with you i was a little disappointed they put edge in the intercontinental title mix with batista and jericho because i thought batista and jericho still had a nice little rivalry on their own but um i guess it needed a little bit more depth and they put edge and the championship involved and I wouldn't say it added to it, but um, it was it was a solid bout. Uh, nothing to really write home about, other than the fact that this is where the Toronto crowd started to uh, started to dictate um, what they liked and didn't like on this show. And one thing they didn't like a part of this show was Edge, who was a hometown boy. He was he was booed in the building as the intercontinental champion which was strange to me and i like i said i remember jerry lawler and jim ross on commentary referring to toronto as bizarro world that they were booing the hometown kid in edge um which i think this was like around the time when they started to realize that they had a little something more in edge uh as a performer um not only from you know his, his in-ring ability but as a character and his way his ability to adapt with the audience and the audience reactions um because he didn't miss a beat he embraced uh the toronto audience's disdain for him throughout this match uh there's been instances over the years when guys have uh you know for instance rock and hogan in that same city two years prior 
Uh, Hogan was Hogan going into the event was the, the was supposed to be the hated heel, and The Rock was supposed to be the babyface, saving the WWF from the NWO invasion. And Hogan ran over The Rock with a semi truck, and and the audience loved it. And the Toronto crowd was. 80-20, maybe 90-10 in support of Hogan over The Rock. And The Rock embraced all that in the match, and it still made for a great match. And then at the end, when The Rock beat him, the audience in Toronto cheered for The Rock. It was really strange. So I guess you could say maybe even Bizarro World began in 2002 during that match with Rock and Hogan. But um, Rock embraced it, and Edge, in this instance, embraced it as well. And it made for... An interesting dynamic in the match, and like I said, also, I think the light bulb went off in management's mind and was like, I think he could be a good heel. Maybe we should explore him as a bad guy on his own. I mean, he was a great chicken shit heel with Christian in the tag team ranks, but on his own, hasn't been proven yet. So I think this was the point in time where management, like I said, light bulb went off and was like, let's, let's pursue this a little further. But... Um, History showed us that Edge would end up the victor and would would keep the Intercontinental Championship uh, over Batista and Chris Jericho. But what if? Now, there's two different scenarios here. What if the roles were reversed and Batista would end up the victor over Edge and Chris Jericho and walk out the Intercontinental Champion? Um I mean, Batista was on a path of, you know, superstardom being handpicked by Triple H to be a part of this evolution group behind the scenes. And he was looked at to be um, a, a, a big player to come for the WWE in the years to, in the years following. So uh, an Intercontinental Championship victory for Batista would be a nice, you know, uh, nice piece to add to his resume. He was already a tag team champion. Excuse me. At one point with Ric Flair earlier in the year. So uh, Intercontinental Championship run for Batista. 2004, yeah, I could picture it. Um, defending the title against the likes of Edge, the likes of Jericho. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it could be one of those situations where um, Batista getting the Intercontinental Championship um, and being the only one successful um in his match at SummerSlam could be the tipping points for an evolution breakup, which I'll get into that when I discuss the Triple H match as well as the Randy Orton match. Um, you know, Batista winning the Intercontinental Championship could be seen as, a, you know, the early signs of jealousy from other members of evolution. You know, Randy Orton coming up short against Benoit, Triple H coming up short against Eugene. Could we see evolution implode because Batista was the only one to obtain a victory at SummerSlam? That could be possible. Um, but I don't think Batista was as, as over yet for that to take place. I think there was still something missing. The light bulb hadn't gone off yet for him. He was a, he was a strong character, but you know, he was looked at as like a henchman for, for evolution. Maybe this would have maybe the Intercontinental Championship victory would have been the beginning stages of people taking Batista seriously on his own. Um, but I could I could definitely see something like that occurring. Um, Let's just say we trade places and Chris Jericho were to win the Intercontinental Championship. You know, he's been there, done that. Okay? He has. Um, it's, 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 it's old news to him. So Jericho winning the Intercontinental Championship um, doesn't do anything for him um, other than it just provides good matches for us fans against the likes of Christian, against the likes of 
edge against the likes of a Randy Orton or even a Benoit. Um, but it just it just adds another piece to the to to his padded resume um, as the Intercontinental Champion. And ironically enough, uh, he would win the Intercontinental Championship at the Unforgiven 2004 pay per view against Christian in a ladder match after Edge had to forfeit that title due to an injury. So go figure. Um, you know Jericho getting it a month early. Maybe it sets up him and Christian. Who knows? Maybe it sets up him and Edge in a singles bat in a singles match because it looked like. That was where it was kind of going heading into this SummerSlam. And they threw Batista in there because they needed to put him on the card somehow. And Batista had some history with Jericho. And he had a little bit of history with Edge because Edge's involvement facing off against Evolution. So it, it, it doesn't surprise me um, if Jericho were to win the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, it wouldn't do great things for him other than just give us some great matches against some of the names I mentioned before. Um does it speed up Ed? Now, do either of these title victories of Batista or Jericho speed up Edge's uh, path towards a heel turn? Yes, I think it does. I think it would. Because that audience was was all over Edge. And for whatever reason, I don't know what it was. It wasn't like his character was changing. They just, for whatever reason, they chose him. And it was like, yep, like we're going to... We're going to fucking boo you and, you know, you're the hometown kid. We don't care. Fuck you. Like, that's how it was. Um, so, like, a Batista victory over Edge in the triple threat winning the title. And same thing with Jericho. Yeah, I could see Edge kind of snapping and being like, you know what? I get embarrassed in my own hometown. And the people that I grew up with that are here to see me, you don't even support me. Fuck you. You know, I... Uh, that to me i think could be the tipping point for what makes edge um one of the best heels of that era i mean it was not too long after this he would start to develop a little bit more of an attitude and a little bit more of animosity towards guys like sean michaels who was very popular at the time um and rightfully so and we would eventually see them build to this rated r superstar character maybe it starts with a loss in this champ with this championship at SummerSlam in 2004 that that to me i think um is very possible here when it comes to this scenario let's uh let's continue here um with the next match on the card we have kurt angle and eddie guerrero in an all-time classic um, Angle and Guerrero had history with each other going into this match, and they wrestled for the WWE Championship at WrestleMania 20, which was arguably bell-to-bell, -bell, probably the better wrestling match um, on that card, the best wrestling match on that card. I've said that Benoit, Jericho, or Benoit, Michaels, and Hunter is the best match on the show, and I think from a storytelling standpoint and the drama um, that's, in, that's involved in it, um, and the outcome, I think, all around makes the total package. But the uh, the the angle Guerrero bell to bell technically better match out of the two for sure. Um, and so, you know, Eddie gets the best of angle at WrestleMania. He does the whole you know loose shoe um, gimmick and uh, hooks the ropes to keep the title. And then Kurt Angle, because of his injuries, had to take a step back a little bit. 
become the the, the, the SmackDown GM. He helped screw Eddie out of the title um, when JBL beat him the second time in the Texas Bull Rope match at the 2004 Great American Bash. And, it, you know, eventually Angle's actions as the general manager with all the things that he was doing led to his firing as the GM by Vince McMahon not without Vince m making Angle compete at SummerSlam uh, against Eddie Guerrero. Um, and it would be a WrestleMania rematch. Probably, in my opinion, the best match on the card of this show. Um, these two guys had a, had a great match. Angle didn't miss a beat, even though he hadn't wrestled in a few months. He didn't miss a beat, and Eddie was Eddie, man. He, they were just on fire. Um, now... Um, this time around, uh, Eddie did not pick up the victory. Angle would end up winning the match, and uh, it was a nice, um, it was a nice way to get Angle back into the thick of things. And uh, you know, because he was gone for so long um, in ring wise, he was still on the show on a regular basis. Like I said, as the general manager of SmackDown, but um, to kind of get that win under his belt and get it to the revenge, so to speak, over Eddie Guerrero for what Eddie did to him at WrestleMania, um, it was a nice, nice touch for uh, for Kurt Angle's pay per view return. Um, but what if Kurt Angle couldn't get the best of Eddie Guerrero? And what if Eddie Guerrero once again lied, cheated, and stole the victory from Kurt Angle at SummerSlam 2004, just 15 years ago? Well, I think it puts Eddie back in the title picture for sure. Um, because, like I said, if you, if, you, if you followed this story... Eddie kept the belt at WrestleMania, cheated to defeat Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle was named the Raw General Manager, but he made Eddie's life a, a living hell, um, stacking the deck against him time and time again, with eventually, um, you know, helping screw him and awarding JBL with the WWE Championship in that Texas Bull Rope match, um, faking the leg injury. Um, screwing Eddie over time and time again and in other, you know, opportunities for the championship. Finally, um, Eddie gets the best of Kurt Angle in this situation at SummerSlam. And, uh, you know, it, it would be fitting if that were to have taken place, that Eddie, you know, gets his revenge for the guy that screwed him out of the championship. Um, and what does it do for Kurt Angle? Well, you know, if Kurt Angle were to lose... Um, it seemed like Kurt Angle wasn't going to be as full-time because of his injuries. Based on things I've read during that time period, Kurt Angle's health was not in the greatest. That's why he had to take a little break and then come back. So I felt like during this time period in 2004, Angle losing wouldn't have done much to him because he was probably going to step away and not be a part of the show as much because he was going to be a little more part-time, so to speak. They were going to use him when it was necessary. And Eddie was a full-time guy, so if Eddie beats him, Eddie moves on to the championship picture where they could use him, kind of need him, so to speak. Um, and Angle will come and go whenever they see fit. So uh, it, it would, it, at that time, knowing the circumstances surrounding Kurt Angle's health, it would have made sense if Eddie Guerrero defeated him. Um, and it wouldn't have done anything to Kurt because I think Kurt would have been used sparingly or, you know, whenever it was necessary due to his, his health issues. Um, Eddie moving into the title picture. He was already in the title picture before it. Um, and... This was the first pay-per-view he did not have a championship match. Um, so moving him back into the championship picture so soon, um, I don't think would have been the right move. 
Um, maybe Eddie cheating to, to beat Kurt Angle again at this SummerSlam leads to a rematch between the two, maybe at the next pay-per-view or maybe on a, a SmackDown. Uh, who knows? Um, I could see something like that going down too. Uh, so Eddie Guerrero lying, cheating, stealing to defeat Kurt Angle and getting the best of him yet again and Angle getting worked up and frustrated over it. Maybe this leads to Angle like snapping and we don't get nice guy, you know, chicken shit heel Kurt Angle. We get like badass Olympic gold medalist machine Kurt Angle and you know, he, he, he finally gets the best of Eddie Guerrero down the line. You know, maybe maybe because the title was so centered around their issues in the beginning, maybe the rubber match between the two leads to a number one contenders match where the winner gets an opportunity at the championship at like No Mercy or the Survivor Series. Maybe. I could see that going down as well. Um, but, you know, we kind of got that badass olympic gold medalist machine in kurt angle uh when he made eddie tap in the in the ankle lock in real time in 2004 defeating him uh i remember in particular um angle kind of alluding to eddie being the one that would resort to the cheating tactics to to pick up the victory and um Eddie said something like to the effect of, um, you know, I bet you you can't beat me. Or no, Angle said something about, I bet you in a wrestling match, you can't beat me straight up one-on-one. -on -one. And you have to cheat to beat me. And Eddie said something to the effect of, um, what if I can beat you straight up one-on-one -on -one without cheating? Um, and that was the entry going into that match was, is Eddie going to find a way to, to, to squeak out the victory by any means necessary? Or is he going to actually play Kurt Angle's game and go head up one-on-one? -on -one and can he get the job done? That was that was the, the, the story in and of itself for me as a fan watching. I don't know what other people took from it, but that's what I took from it. And that's what I was looking forward to. He tried to cheat, loosened the boot, went to the well too many times. Angle got the best of him, ankle lock. That was the end of the story. But if... if if you know we trade places eddie getting the victory over angle the second time around and cheating again i think we get i think we get another match between the two down the line and like i said maybe it centers around a future opportunity at the wwe championship between both guys um <clears throat> A little sidebar here before we get into the next match. For some of you history buffs out there that remember, this summer slam was also um, remembered for that god-awful dodgeball game between the uh, the some of the WWE divas. Um, I'm not going to trade places with that because I thought it was fucking stupid. So if any of you guys out there or any of you gals out there listening that um, – are expecting me to give you some in-depth analysis on the dodgeball game that took place. Um, you're, 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 you're pushing your luck because it's not going to happen. It was dumb. It was stupid then. It's still stupid now. Um, I get that they were trying to promote some sort of, you know, dodgeball move. I think, the, I think the dodgeball movie was coming out. So they were trying to capitalize on the popularity of that at the time. I, I could be missed. You know, I, I think the dodgeball movie did come out at that time. I don't know if they were doing a promotion with it. I don't believe they were. I think they were just trying to capitalize on the popularity of the, the, the dodgeball um, epidemic. So they tried to incorporate it in the SummerSlam. And they put the girls on the show, um, the divas from Raw and SmackDown. And so it, it, they had it like in like the Toronto Raptors, like practice basketball court. Um, 
coach was emceeing it. Yeah, it was pretty dumb and stupid. Um, and then a scripted, organized uh, dodgeball game on a wrestling show. I didn't think have a place, but you know, it's it's WWE for you. So uh, you know, it is what it is. But um, let's move on here. Let's go to the next match. Uh, it was Triple H taking on Eugene. And this is an interesting scenario here because a lot had taken place with this Eugene character following WrestleMania up until this point. The Eugene character debuted as the nephew of Eric Bischoff. A, a, he was a savant, a pro wrestling savant, so to speak. I guess you could say he was like the WWE's equivalent to Rain Man. And for those of you that um, are, you know, know what I'm talking about, Rain, the movie Rain Man with Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. Um, Rain Man is, play, you know, Dustin Hoffman plays the Rain Man character uh, where, you know, he's, you know, he's a, a, an adult with special needs and disabilities, but he's, he's so smart and intelligent in, in many different facets of life, um, but he's a little behind um, intellectually, socially, and uh, his brother, who is played by Tom Cruise, uh, is, is, you know, the fast talking hot shot young 30 single young 30 something that you know um kind of broke away from the family but now that his family is is no longer alive i think he needs to like take care of him and in order to collect the inheritance so to speak that's part of the deal um and they go on this like road trip or whatever um and it's a very it's a very touching movie i, I wrote a book report on it in high school um and working with people with disabilities um, through through my through my day job and having uh, family members with you know disabilities and, and and knowing people that struggle like that every day it's very touching so um, this story with the Eugene character it was touching at times but it was comedic a lot of people didn't really care for it because they thought you they were exploiting people with disabilities and special needs and um, I thought they 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 put a nice spin on this. They 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 did it in a very tasteful manner, I believe. Um, like I said, the Eugene character, the nephew of Eric Bischoff, who was the general manager of Raw. He was a wrestling savant. He could wrestle his ass off, and he was a, a lifelong wrestling fan. And he was he was um, he was so beloved by the audience that they ended they paired him with William Regal, who was like Bischoff's. I don't know. I think he was like Bischoff's assistant at the time, or he was like a, a member of Bischoff's administration as the G, as the GM of Raw, and he was tasked to babysitting. And you know, Regal, the the English snob, and Eugene, this lovable, um, you know, th this lovable unorthodox character these two opposites together on tv um made for some very fun and interesting television um and the eugene character is becoming so popular that they they paired him up with evolution at one point and the eugene character was infatuated with triple h grew up a triple h wrestling fan wanted to be a part of evolution thought he was a part of evolution triple h tried to exploit eugene and use eugene's disability to his advantage to gain the world heavyweight championship the month prior against chris benoit at the vengeance pay-per-view eugene unfortunately um cost triple h the match and triple h showed his true colors and disposed of eugene uh very very quickly and we were off to the races it made triple h a mega heel um 
And I also what this Eugene character did as well was it took someone who was as unlikable as William Regal was and made him very, very popular and likable amongst the audience. I mean, Regal, like I said, English snob, complete opposite of this Eugene character. People loved him because he eventually he was humanized um, by being around this Eugene character. The William Regal character became fell in love with Eugene and, and their friendship. And throughout the buildup of this match, heading into SummerSlam, Evolution, mainly Triple H, targeted Eugene, but also targeted William Regal as well. And um, it was it was a it was a it was a showdown that I was looking forward to because the Eugene character was so popular, and I felt like this was make or break, you know, um, for this character against a name like Triple H at a SummerSlam. Like if the character makes a good showing or gets a victory over triple h then they got some big plans for him okay they do and so you kind of didn't know where it was going because like i said evolution and triple h they had targeted eugene and william regal in the weeks leading up to SummerSlam, and they had bloodied up eugene and they bloodied up william regal and you know it made you as a fan especially younger fans wanting to see eugene get his revenge against triple h the evil triple h who tried to take advantage of this 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 intellectually disabled yet charming wonderful human being known as eugene and so, um, once again, this was a case where the, the audience really played a big part in this match and I think would play a big part in things going forward with the Eugene character because the, for whatever reason, the audience did not take to this Eugene character. He came out to a chorus of boos and, you know, he was supposed to be the good guy. And the match would go on, and Eugene's part of Eugene's character was that he would emulate his favorite superstars growing up. So he would do the ear cup, like Hulk Hogan, where he would cup his ear and get the the reaction of the audience. The audience booed that. He would do a leg drop. They booed that. He did a Stone Cold Stunner. He booed that. They did a Rock Bottom. He booed that. He he emulated all his heroes, and the Toronto audience wasn't into it. And they would end up be cheering Triple H. And history. Um, treated us to another triple h victory over this eugene character and i felt like this was when they really knocked the wind out of his sails like i thought triple h or at least eugene had needed to have a better showing against triple h not necessarily win but needed to have a better showing against triple h in order to be taken seriously um because i saw at least in the eugene character i saw two two trajectories for this for this character either a this savant this rain man this intellectually disabled charming pro wrestling diehard fan that got into the business eugene making it to the championship and whether he was coming up short or he was winning the winning a title of some sorts the chase to the championship, I think, would probably have been the most heartwarming story WWE could have put out for him. I really do. Um, and I think it's something that, like, it could, have, it could have been one of those situations where, like, mainstream media and the special needs community could have latched onto that. You know? Um, whether he won or lost, different story. But a chase to a championship or winning a title would have been huge for this character or and this is where things get a little controversial or we could have seen 
I, I thought we were going to see this Eugene character turned out to be a fraud. And he was using um, the, the special needs community to his advantage to gain notoriety in wrestling, being, you know, a, a total con artist. Now, that's probably not the likely of the two scenarios because, you know, even back then in 2004, that would have been a sensitive subject to, to, to display and portray on television. I mean, come on. You know how many, you know how much backlash I think the company would have gotten if they had, you know, tried to make us all believe that they had given someone with special needs an opportunity to wrestle, and then it turns out the guy was a fake? You know, and, and people saw that that was that was portrayed in the story. I think it would have gotten some huge backlash and and caused a lot of issues for the company from a public relations standpoint. Um, so when it comes to trading places with this match here. Like I said, the crowd was not into Eugene whatsoever, and. If the crowd were to have stayed the way they did and Eugene were to win, it wouldn't have come across very well. Um, I think a Eugene victory for his stock would have helped over a guy like Triple H. It wouldn't have done anything to Triple H. It would have helped the Eugene character. But the, audi the, the, the payoff with him winning and the audience um, not being very receptive to it would have – I think it would have knocked the wind out of his sails. Um, the audience doing what they did that night – towards him in that match i think was like a deciding factor for the for management at that time and was like you know well if they're not buying it maybe we shouldn't push it as hard anymore and they really didn't i mean eugene was still a lovable character and was popular following this but um he was relegated to like tag matches with regal and uh he didn't do a a, a whole lot um as a character, I believe they might have had a tag team title run with. Yeah, he had a tag team title run, run with William Regal, but it just wasn't the same. Just wasn't the same. Um, you know, that, that spark was gone, I guess. And I think that I think we saw that 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 spark fade uh, at this pay-per-view at SummerSlam. And um, even with a victory over Triple H, I still think management would have probably regretted it. If anything. I think if, if they originally put Eugene over Triple H and the audience was reacting that way, it wouldn't surprise me in 2002 if they called an audible in the middle of the match and the referee got buzzed in his earpiece and said, we're switching the finish, Hunter's going over. Because the audience was so against this Eugene character for whatever reason. Um, maybe it was another situation where it was just crammed down our throats. It was on TV every week, and it was a major focal point. But at the same time, it was so popular. People were into it. People were getting into the character. People were investing their 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 emotional attachment to this character. Um, so it, it it's you know six dozen you know six to a, six to one half a dozen to the other whatever they want to call it when it comes to you know whether he was crammed down our throats or whether it was popular enough to to get as much television time as it did you know to whoever you speak to when it comes to that um, you know Triple H winning was probably the better call but I felt like the way the story was laid out and mapped out as the weeks went on that a, a Eugene victory over Triple H and getting that revenge would have done great things for him but this is where the audience really kind of interjects it and, and, and changes things up a bit now I brought it up earlier you know this Eugene character ended up you know could end up could he could he end up becoming a fraud 
um, and, and, and changing who he is as an individual and using the, the, the community of, of, of special needs to his advantage. Um, like I said, it, it would have been a bad PR move, but it would make sense if he lost and he used the audience as an excuse to turn on them because, you know, of, of their disdain towards him during that match. Um, maybe that would have been the tipping point for him to say, you know what? I'm not this person. I've never been this person. And, you know, the only reason why I did this was to, to, to gain notoriety and fame. And maybe this could have been an Eric Bischoff thing where Bischoff forced him to act this way and to gain this kind of notoriety um, in this manner. And, you know, he's kind of like, you know, Uncle Eric Bischoff's um, pet project, you know, Bischoff, you know, bringing his nephew in and creating this this uh, th this gem of a pro wrestler to dominate Monday Night Raw. That that's just me fishing, but I don't think that's the likely scenario. Um, but like I said, the crowd played a big part, and I think would play a big part um, in the trajectory of Eugene. Um, had he won this match, I don't think it would have really done uh, a whole lot because the audience was so vocal against him. So um, let's move on here with the the second to last match on this card, the WWE Championship match that took place. It was John Bradshaw Layfield making his first championship title defense on pay-per-view against The Undertaker. Um the JBL character was established not too long after WrestleMania when uh, they had split up the APA with him and Ron Simmons, and uh, he was moving on, and he had that incredible rivalry with Eddie Guerrero, which in the beginning I was not a fan of. I thought, you know, who's this guy? Like, I mean, he was he was a, a barroom brawler one week, and now all of a sudden we're supposed to take him seriously uh, against the WWE champion. I thought JBL was at least, you know, U.S. Championship material. I never thought he would have been the WWE Champion. The thought didn't even cross my mind, and if it did, I, I wasn't thrilled with it. Um, even when he won the belt, I was like, uh, like um, this one's going to take a little while to try on and see if it fits. Um, but at, over time, it grew on me, and I think part of that grew on me was his, was his rivalry with The Undertaker because they were both similar in stature when it comes to their size, and Undertaker was a undertaker was a definitely more than enough of a credible opponent to compete for the wwe championship but undertaker was probably the guy to really measure whether jbl was going to make it or not on the main event scene and that's no disrespect to eddie guerrero because i know that management was testing jbl and and they basically kind of gave him an ultimatum and said if this doesn't work out with you and eddie like your push is done um and it ended up working out, and they gave him the championship, and then he moved on, um, and he would face Undertaker at this SummerSlam. And at the time, Undertaker just made a return at WrestleMania. Uh, he went from being the biker back to the dead man, and he brought Paul Bearer back with him at one point, and then he he locked Paul Bearer in a concrete crypt and dumped a whole bunch of cement, and that's a whole other botchamania story that we'll get into for another day. Um, but Undertaker was on his own heading into this SummerSlam. He earned an opportunity at the title, and JBL um, needed a good, credible 
opponent for his first title defense and undertaker was the perfect fit like i said two guys similar in stature and size they're familiar with each other working with each other um i was looking forward to this match because uh, i was the jbl character was starting to grow on me more and more as time went on in the build-up for this match um Undertaker was a part-time guy and he was semi-part-time I should say he appeared you know maybe every other week or you know twice a month or whatever but um, he was he was still around enough for for fans to care and to be put in a championship situation like this with JBL now um, as history showed us um, JBL would end up winning this match by disqualification after the undertaker choke slammed him through the top of the limousine the roof of the limousine was gimmicked and jbl um, went right through the limousine took a bump um, blood everywhere it was a wild brawl um, and you definitely saw that things weren't over between the two of them whatsoever um, but what if what if uh what if undertaker won um by disqualification let's just say by disqualification because that was the finish it was a dq finish um jbl using a chair to save his own ass um and and and, and keep the title uh maybe orlando jordan running in jumping on undertaker causing the referee to ring the bell him and jbl escape with the championship undertaker does the spot with the the choke slam maybe choke slams orlando jordan through the thing and jbl um you know runs away with the title and we we continue on with this feud which eventually it would um i i was just reading recently that uh undertaker apparently pitched the idea to management that he wanted to jbl to beat him clean in the middle one two three at that SummerSlam, and jbl objected against it and said no i need to be the most chicken shit heel possible as the champion i need people to hate me and want to see you and other guys come after me for the belt you know, you need to win by, you know, I need to win by a DQ and you need to choke slam me through the, the, um, the, the limousine and Undertaker and management obviously obliged. And we got that and we got that finish and that iconic moment that in that highlight reel where you see Undertaker hoist JBL and choke slam him through the limousine. Um, what were to happen if Undertaker won by DQ and all that same stuff happened? Well, we would see what we what we got in 2004 between both men. Um, we would see the feud continue, maybe leading to the last ride match at No Mercy, uh, which saw the involvement of Heidenreich. Um, but what if The Undertaker actually won the WWE Championship? What happens to JBL? What happens to The Undertaker as champion? Okay. Let's start off with Undertaker. Well, he's, you know, returning. He returned as the dead man. Um, he got that big win over Kane. He got that big win over Booker T. Um, he killed off the Paul Bearer character um, and, you know, uh, defeated the Dudleys at that Great American Bash pay-per-view. He gets the title over JBL. He's reestablished that the dead man is a strong force in WWE on SmackDown. Where does Undertaker go from here? Um I could probably see Undertaker um, in a series of rematches with JBL for the title, whether it's a gimmick match, casket match, last ride match, um, some kind of no disqualification stipulation, maybe even Hell in the Cell, um, where he, he defends the title against JBL um, in that match. Uh, who knows? Um, 
maybe we see Undertaker, Kurt Angle for the championship. Um, let's just say we didn't trade places with Kurt Angle and Eddie Guerrero, and Angle got the victory over Guerrero, um, setting up the rubber match. And then Angle beats Guerrero again in like a SmackDown or maybe even the next pay-per-view. Uh, maybe we see Undertaker, Kurt Angle. They had great chemistry together. Some of the Undertaker's most underrated matches are from Kurt Angle. Um, he had a great match in 2002, um, in July of 2002, uh, when they did that double pin tap out finish that led to the triple threat match with The Rock at the Vengeance 2002 pay-per-view, uh, Undertaker, Kurt Angle, Rock. Um, their singles match led to that match. Um, great match. They had a great match in 2003 on a SmackDown. Um, both guys tore it up on TV for the championship. I believe Angle was the champion at the time. And Brock Lesnar um, did a run-in causing the, the, the DQ. And then they had another great match following 2004 in 2006 at the No Way Out pay-per-view with another very similar um uh, tap out pinning combination kind of finish so um undertaker kurt angle in 2004 for the wwe championship i don't know how long they would go with that rivalry but i could see it happening because they have great chemistry together and smackdown smackdown had great matches but their storylines weren't as strong and and felt as important as raw Raw had the stronger storylines. The matches weren't as good as our good buddy Dennis J. Levy told us on the ECW One Night Stand uh, watch party uh, when he was talking about the brand split. Um, Angle and Undertaker, I think, could have a good match and be a, a great storyline as, like, the, the focal point of SmackDown. Depending on how long that goes, a month, two months tops, I think because Undertaker was very part-time and he was looked at as an attraction to management and because Kurt Angle's health wasn't in the, in, in the, in the best uh, condition that he was also kind of part-time he was used when they needed him even though he was a regular on tv when it came to in-ring matches they they kind of babied him for a little while which understandably so so maybe that wouldn't have been the best route um as far as what it does for jbl if he loses the title he looks like a flash in the pan champion he's in the same if, if, if undertaker beat him in 2004 he looks like he's he's on that long list of guys that you know held the title briefly and they didn't do anything with or it just never really came to be the likes of jack swagger in 2010 he won the world title after money in the bank and and what happened there he had a run for a few months and then he went back to you know mid-card purgatory alberto del rio even jinder mahal currently he was the wwe champion at one point um yeah that's where jbl kind of falls in my opinion um and out of all those guys i mentioned jbl even after he lost the WWE Championship in 2005 to John Cena, he was still looked at as a top guy. I mean, he was still a credible contender, and he didn't fall to the wayside like some of these other guys I, that, that I just mentioned with Swagger, Del Rio, um, Jinder Mahal. So JBL is probably the exception. Those, un, those are the other individuals I just mentioned. Their ascension to the top is very reminiscent to JBL. You know, guys that management took a chance on and it paid off in the short term, but they didn't carefully plan their trajectory long term. For whatever reason, JBL, his long term trajectory, even losing the championship in 2005 um, was was very promising and 
you didn't really feel like he fell off to the wayside. So um, JBL losing it in 2004 to Undertaker, he he becomes that flash in the pan champion in my opinion. And he the 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 closest he gets to any kind of success as a character in my opinion would probably be the United States Championship, maybe a tag team title run with like him and Orlando Jordan as like something brief, like a stopgap um, to transition to something else. But um, that's kind of where I see JBL if he were to lose the WWE Championship and where I see Undertaker if he were to have won the title in 2004. And uh, we get to our last match here on this SummerSlam 2004 Trading Places edition. The main event of this pay-per-view was Chris Benoit defending the World Heavyweight Championship against Randy Orton. Now, this was interesting in 2004 because I went to that Vengeance pay-per-view and... You know, Edge and Orton, they tore the house down. They had the best match of the night. That was at that up until that point, that was probably the best wrestling match I ever saw in person. Wrestling, bell to bell. Those two guys just had great chemistry together. And like I said, I was really hoping for a Randy Orton Edge rematch for the Intercontinental title um, at SummerSlam. I was even kind of hoping we'd see it in a ladder match. Um, you know, playing off of, you know, Edge's uh, ladder match history, being in his hometown of Toronto, defending the gold against Randy Orton. I was really hoping to see that. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised when Randy Orton won a number one contender's battle royal to become the, the, the individual to face Chris Benoit for the world heavyweight title. I was very surprised because based off of the finish at Vengeance, Benoit beat Triple H with a little bit of help accidentally from Eugene. I thought we were going to see Benoit, Hunter, and Eugene in a triple threat at SummerSlam. And that's where Hunter would have picked up the victory and regained the championship under the triple threat rules. Um, but we didn't get that. We got something different. And like I said, I was pleasantly surprised because, you know, I was so enthralled with that vengeance match that... It, I, I was really excited for the path that not only Edge was going to take, but Randy Orton. I'd become a Randy Orton fan um, when he had joined Evolution. Um, he reminded me a lot of a very young Tully Blanchard. I was a big Tully Blanchard guy when I was a kid. Um, as a member of the Horsemen, whether he was in a single or whether he was in a tag with Arn Anderson, even as the Brain Busters in the WWF, I loved Tully Blanchard. And so the... Um, the, the, the showdown between him and Benoit, I was looking forward to because I knew it was going to be a great match. Orton was putting on great matches. Benoit was the architect, so to speak, of technical wrestling at that time in WWE, especially on Monday Night Raw. And as world heavyweight champion, um, I thought he was doing a pretty solid job uh, given the, uh, the, the, the cards that were dealt to him in his run. Uh, with, with, with Shawn Michaels and Kane, and then he was tagging with Edge at one point as the world champion, and they won the belts, and um, then, you know, Triple H, and now Orton. Um, I knew we were in for a good match, and it was a great match. You know, I've said this before. We've talked about the Chris Benoit situation. He's still a piece of shit for what he did, but recognizing his talent and his ability in the ring at that time, I'm not going to disregard history. That match was a great match with him and Orton. And... History showed us that Randy Orton would become the youngest world heavyweight champion, defeating Chris Benoit. Um, 
in uh, in, a, in a great match uh, you know probably the match uh, close to the match on that i said eddie and angle probably stole the show or tore it up earlier but this this right here is not too far from being match of the night and so um these two individuals benoit and orton um their paths and their trajectories could go in a number of different ways if we flip the results Let's just say that Chris Benoit keeps the World Heavyweight Championship, defeating Randy Orton. Or let's just say he keeps the title, okay? In what manner? Well, we can't forget about Triple H because this is what was interesting about this matchup. Triple H was the world title picture on Raw for the better part of two years, okay? dominating the world title picture working with booker t goldberg kevin nash kane sean michaels rob van dam chris jericho the list goes on and on okay and for you know granted hunter had a little bit more of a personal um issue with the, with eugene resulting in their match um you kind of had a feeling Hunter wasn't going to be too far behind. And especially if it was one of his evolution stablemates, the guys that helped him keep the title and win the title on numerous occasions, you knew something was up. He wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention to that because he was busy doing his own thing with Eugene, but you knew something was up. And there's a part of me in, in 2004 that vaguely remembers watching this match and thinking, oh, there's no way Orton's going to win as much as I'd love to see it. I was like, there's no way Orton's going to win. I felt like, and this is very this is very possible for 2004, but I felt like if Benoit were to have left SummerSlam that night with the World Championship, it was because Triple H got involved in the match. Triple H not screwing Randy Orton, but just not screwing Randy Orton intentionally, or maybe, but getting involved in the match attacking Benoit, running in, causing a disqualification. Evolution beats down Benoit, and we close the pay-per-view with the early signs of dissension between Randy Orton and Triple H. Orton confronting Hunter and is like, dude, I almost had him beat, man. Why did you get involved? And Hunter not really having much of an excuse for it other than the fact, well, you know, I just came out here to have your back. Um, kind of some bullshit lame duck excuse, but really in the back of his mind, and in the back of most fans' minds, Hunter really wanting to be the world champion and he not wanting Randy Orton to be the one to dethrone Chris Benoit. Um, I could see something like that. And then the the, the beginning stages of the, the breakup from Evolution. Now, I brought this up earlier, okay? Let's say Hunter loses. Let's say Orton doesn't win the championship. But Batista is the Intercontinental Champion, okay? Hunter costs Orton the match by attacking Benoit. We get a disqualification finish. Batista comes out. Evolution comes out. They beat on Benoit. And we get to Hunter and Orton, like I said, jawing with each other, beginning to fight. Not physically, but having their issues and Batista's kind of in the middle and although Batista's trying to play peacemaker he's also reminding everyone that hey guys you know chill out like it's an evolution night I won the Intercontinental Championship almost rubbing it in both of their faces 
and maybe this is where we see instead of evolution turning on Orton evolution turning on Batista but I think that's a I think that's an intriguing scenario but I don't think that's likely I see more of Hunter and Orton button heads because Orton doesn't believe that Hunter was there to watch his back he was there to screw him out of the championship because hunter is jealous of randy orton and his success and we get the early stages of the evolution breakup and they build it up for months and months and months until finally boom it explodes and then you get orton and triple h and whether it's royal rumble wrestlemania even um it probably would have led to wrestlemania um if they kind of went that direction uh, what does it do for benoit as the champion well Maybe we see more, um, you know, maybe we see a triple threat with Benoit, Randy Orton, and Triple H at the next pay-per-view. And um, that helps continue furthering the split of evolution where, you know, both guys want to be the champion, but they also want to kind of run the ship in evolution. And there's a power struggle with this title, you know? That's something I could see going down and, and furthering along the path of this split when evolution. Um, or we could see something totally different. And we see, you know, the evolution group imploding on one side. And on the other side, Benoit's dealing with his own issues as the world champion against someone like an Edge. Okay? Or someone like Chris Jericho. Um, because Benoit you know was during this time period in 2004 even though he was the world champion on, on monday night raw he wasn't really the focal point now you also got to factor in Shawn michaels here um he wasn't on this show he was injured and he was taking some time off he would come back at the next pay-per-view and he would wrestle kane because kane was the one that wrote him off tv but um benoit um benoit is world champion um, following this SummerSlam could lead to maybe a series of matches with Shawn Michaels. Um, Shawn Michaels and him kind of had a, a, a series of one-on-one -on -one matches for the championship on Monday Night Raw, and Hunter cost Michaels that opportunity, leading to Hunter and Michaels in Hell in the Cell at Bad Blood in 2004, in June of that year. Uh, maybe we see Hunter and Benoit finally you know get the match that they they want and the match that the fans deserve a proper finish of some sorts so i think with a chris benoit victory or a chris benoit leaving the world heavyweight champion of SummerSlam that year i think um there's a lot of different paths that some of these guys can go on um even eugene um Maybe Eugene being a part of this and Eugene getting an op maybe Benoit giving Eugene an opportunity at the world championship because, you know, of his of his valiant effort over Triple H, um, you know, even though he didn't win, he, he, he gave it his all. You know, maybe they go to that well and they try to do Benoit and Eugene um, for the world title, something short term, not saying it's going to last long term. But like I said, various different possibilities when it comes to this uh this summer slam event from 2004 and i think that about does it i think i've covered just about every what if scenario when it comes to uh 
trading these places here for SummerSlam 2004, the 15 year anniversary approaching this week. Um, thought it was fitting that we give you guys another bonus uh, trading places series because I love to I, I love all the what if scenarios when it comes to wrestling I love you know well what if they did this or what if they did that without trying to overdo it like most people do with fantasy booking these days when someone says oh well, what if Kenny Omega showed up on Monday Night Raw yeah what if exactly like um, I don't overdo it like that but just what if history changed and how would it have led us to certain points like that stuff really intrigues me that's why i love doing these things for you and i hope you guys enjoy them too um and next week we're we're going to continue um we're going to continue the summer slam theme here as we're going to be bringing you the my favorites collection returning as uh we're going to sit down and watch my favorite steel cage match of all time Bret the hitman heart and owen hart from SummerSlam 1994 we'll be approaching the 25 year anniversary at the end of this month and uh i thought it was fitting that you know we like i said we've covered a lot of 1994 a lot of it having to do with brett and owen uh between the royal rumble match watch along from that year to the wrestlemania 10 watch party uh with jamie garabedian and we covered uh you know owen and his uh his his career retrospective on the anniversary of his passing we covered uh you know Justin's favorite wrestler, Bret the Hitman Hart, just uh, you know a week before his wedding, and I thought you know why not cover the greatest cage match of all time between these two guys, Bret and Owen, SummerSlam 1994 from the My Favorites Collection, my favorite steel cage match in all of wrestling history. Justin's going to be joining me. We will sit down. We will talk about what led to this match, as well as our thoughts going into this match, and then we will watch this match and discuss. Um, the, the, all that took place in this classic affair from 25 years ago for the WWF Championship. Bret Hart versus Owen are inside the big blue steel cage. Be on the lookout for marking out the day's weekend warriors this Saturday. Saturdays are for wrestling, and that means it's for you too as well. If you are a true pro wrestling fan, then you know what Saturday pro wrestling is all about. We cover WCW Saturday night and WWF superstars from 19. 1992 on marking out the day's weekend warriors you can find that each and every saturday over at the retro mania pro wrestling podcast network on podbean and with that being said i think it's about that time that we put this show down for the three count we've traded all places we've played role reversal till we're blue in the face SummerSlam 2004 reimagined is one for the books and that book is closing and we will see you all next week <laughs>